I invite you to turn in the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 21. And you may know your Bible well enough to know that in Exodus chapter 20 is where we have the Ten Commandments listed for us. It is noteworthy that in our Bibles, the word abortion is not printed. There is no word for abortion. It is not addressed specifically. Some people would ask, why is that the case? I think one reason is in the context of the Hebrew mind, it would never have occurred to them to snuff out the life of an unborn baby. For one thing, in Exodus chapter 20, when God gave the law through Moses, he made it very clear, and we're turning to Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25 in a moment, but in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it's pretty clear. King James, thou shalt not kill. NIV translated it, you shall not murder. It was clear in the Hebrew mind that to take the life of an unborn child would be murder. We also need to understand that in the context of the Hebrew culture, remember, and this is clearly, we won't take time to research it, but there's examples and illustrations in Scripture, that to be childless was to be considered under a curse from God. A woman who became pregnant would have never thought of terminating the life of that child. All life was considered a blessing from God. I'm still fighting a cold. Excuse me once in a while. <coughs> Should give those guys a heads up back there. Forgive me, please. So in the context of understanding that we do not murder and I think in an unspoken way, the Hebrew mind and the writers of the Old Testament would have clearly, you would say it's an argument from silence, but I think it's a logical argument that they would have clearly included abortion or termination of unborn baby or any kind of act that is unthinkable, like a partial birth abortion, would be clearly murder. There was no other way of thinking about it. But as we think biblically, number one, I want you to recognize that the Bible specifically prosecutes murder of the unborn. The Bible specifically teaches the prosecution of the murder of the unborn. Notice Exodus 21. It's one of the only references we have of the termination of life in, in the unborn uh, from the womb, preborn. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 22, Moses gives instruction, and it says, If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. Okay, so clearly, in this tussle, a pregnant woman is knocked down or hit and injured, and it instigates a preemie birth, but the baby is viable and the baby lives and the baby's healthy and all's well that ends well when it's all said and done. The husband is allowed to levy a fine against the offender and that's to be enforced. But notice verse 23. But if there is serious injury, okay, it doesn't, you say, but Pastor Ann, it doesn't say death, but I think it's implied in the very next phrase. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life. The implication being, or if the, unborn baby comes out and is not viable and it's premature, or it's injured to the degree that there's a death involved of the unborn child, it is to be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and bruise for bruise. Clearly, if this is just a massive tissue, this is injustice. 
But I think that you can see that it's clear from the context that the Bible specifically permits prosecution for the murder of the unborn. Number two, I want you to see that the Bible categorically condemns the murder of the innocent. The Bible categorically condemns the murder of the innocent. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 6 for this. We are going to be looking in our Bible at a variety of references this morning. And uh, that's a good exercise for us. So as we think biblically, number one, we recognize that the Bible specifically prosecutes or allows prosecution for murder of the unborn. Number two, it categorically condemns the murder of the innocent. Look at Proverbs chapter 6. I don't know that you can come up with a stronger statement about the mind of God about such a matter. There are six things, verse 16 of Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Okay? It's like, I wonder what God really thinks. He hates it. It's detestable. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and the next phrase, hands that shed innocent blood. I would ask you, is there anything more innocent than an unborn baby? It's a separate entity. We know now, and it's amazing how technology has worked for us, clearly with the advances of ultrasound and other technological advancement, we have so much information about how quickly the unborn baby begins to form and has its own set of chromosomes, separate from its mother, separate from its father, its own set, all of the design, all of the creative power of God is right there. What a mystery, a separate life, and how rapidly a beating heart comes to be. God says, it is detestable to me to take the life of an innocent. Thirdly, as we think biblically, I want you to see that the Bible unmistakably describes the unborn baby as a baby. Let me say that again. The Bible unmistakably describes or categorizes the unborn baby as a baby. Let me show you this. We're in Luke's gospel now. Turn to Luke's gospel. We're trying to to learn how to make sure we are thinking biblically. And so, as we recognize what God's word says, and this is not exhaustive, but some, some high points. The Bible specifically prosecutes the murder of the unborn. The Bible categorically condemns the murder of the innocent, which would include the unborn. Thirdly, The Bible unmistakably describes the unborn baby as a baby. I want you to do a little bit of a word study with me. You know by now, most of you, that the New Testament was not written in English. It was written in Greek. So when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote, and when the Apostle Paul wrote, and the Apostle Peter wrote, and John wrote, and James wrote, the New Testament in particular is written almost in its entirely, in Greek. A common Greek of the day called Koine Greek versus a classical Greek. Just a common language Greek of the day that they spoke. In the Greek, the words, by the way they're written, have very specific identifying points to them. 
in the grammar, you learn a lot. That's why when we send guys like Matt White off to Bible college in a pastoral program, I encourage him to get his Greek, get his Hebrew, so that he can open up his Greek Bible and he can look at the words in it and it sheds light on what we're looking at that was translated into the English, which sometimes clouds the precise meaning of words. Let me show you what I mean. In Luke chapter 2, look at verse excuse me, Luke chapter 1, verse 44, we have the account where Mary, the mother of our Lord, approaches her cousin Elizabeth. Elizabeth, who is, of course, elderly, has a remarkable pregnancy going on herself, she being the mother of John the Baptist. And notice what it says. Verse 42, for example, let's start in Luke 1, 42. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, when she, Elizabeth, when she saw Mary, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The baby in my womb leaped for joy. I want you to notice that it did not use the word fetus. Okay, The Greek word translated for unborn baby here used the word baby, all right, translated into English, okay? The baby in my womb. Now turn to chapter 2, verse 12. Chapter 2, verse 12. Take a look at there. This is the announcement of the angels to the shepherds, and they say, this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. All right, now you tell me the difference so far. Did the shepherds need to understand from that phrase that the word baby there meant an unborn baby and that when they got to the manger, Mary would still be pregnant? Not at all. It was clear that this was a baby that would be lying in the hands of his, mo- of his mommy or wrapped in these swaddling clothes and lying in a manger as a p- fulfillment of prophecy. Guess what? In the Greek, it is the exact same word. Okay, so where if we were going to put together a contemporary English modern version of the Bible, we might translate Elizabeth's word as, my fetus leapt for joy. In the Greek, it uses the word baby. It's a baby, though it's unborn. In later, when the, in the same exact way, and I could show you this multiple times, there's another illustration, and you don't have to turn there, but in 1815, it's the passage, and it's quite familiar to us, it's the passage where Jesus is there and, and people are bringing little children to him. And the disciples start shooing them away. Remember that? And Jesus said, no. And in the King James, it's a suffer the little children to come unto me. The NIV literally translates, translates it, let the babies come to me in Luke 18. These are children that are able probably to walk. It's still using the same word. Unborn baby, the baby in a manger, the little children coming to Jesus. Same word. Isn't that interesting? A little bit of homework, a little bit of detective work, and we can find out that the scripture unmistakably describes the unborn baby as a baby. No mistakes. You know, I just want to say that I think that I think that almost everybody knows that. 
I think that people who try to build an argument for the fact that an unborn baby is not a real baby, I think they're deceiving themselves. And I think that deep in their heart, they know it. Believing themselves to be wise, Romans 1 says what? They become fools. Everybody knows that, don't they? Number four, finally, to think biblically. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5 is a good example. Psalm 139 is another example. But will you turn to Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5? Fourthly, I want you to think biblically and know that the Bible clearly defines the unborn as a person. The Bible clearly defines the unborn as a person. If you're going to think biblically about an unborn baby, you have to know that in Scripture, unborn babies are defined as persons, not its. All right? Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Psalm 139 has a similar reflection to it, but notice what it says here. Before I formed you in the womb, a person, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. God had a plan. God knew that this was a person. And the second he came together in his mother's womb, Jeremiah was a person for whom God had a plan. You know, you stop and think about it. There's, I think there's just under 2 million people in the state of West Virginia, residents, about 1.8 1.9 million, I think. I think our population's actually gone down a little bit. Just think of every year going throughout the whole state of West Virginia and putting a dot of paint on every other person and that every year the people with the dot of paint disappear. Think about the productivity. Think about the personhood. Think about the personalities. Think about the reality of the quality of life that has been snuffed out in our country. And listen to me. Think about the reality of Almighty God looking down from heaven on a God-fearing nation whose coinage says, in God we trust, and they kill a million babies a year there. What is God supposed to do with that? I'll tell you what he's going to do with that. He judges it. He's already doing it. Thankfully, we have a merciful God, don't we? Thankfully, we have a God who forgives, who restores, who renews. How then shall we live? Well, first of all, let's at least think biblically. Let's recognize the value of the unborn. I hope that you've followed that line of thought. In conclusion, I think... It's appropriate to say a few things about how we must live counterculturally. It's the old frog in the kettle syndrome, isn't it? Isn't it easy to just kind of get acclimated to the world around us? You know, I think we need to recognize, and will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, that God has called us to be noticeably different than the people around us. That if the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who brings salvation, has transformed our lives, as we'll hear testimony in just a few minutes about these folks who are going to be baptized and how the Lord saved them 
And we have great testimonies among us how God has changed our lives. You know the power of the gospel. I'm not the same as the people around me. Notice Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. I want you to notice something. He didn't say, get your information, get your facts, and go up and down the street and convince people through logic that the unborn baby is a baby and therefore it shouldn't be killed. As I referenced earlier in our, on one of the points, I think people already know that. It's a denial of logic. I was thumbing through Judge Robert Bork's little book. It's really not a little book. The copy I had is a little paperback edition of entitled Slouching Towards Gomorrah. He has a chapter in there on abortion, and he gives a little story about how one evening he says, I naively remarked in a talk that those who favor the right to abort would likely change their minds if they could be convinced that a human being was being killed. In other words, he thought, and he let it, you know, it came through in a speech, that if he could just show them this is really a baby, then logically they would conclude that abortion is evil and we shouldn't do it. That those who favor the right to abort would likely change their minds if they could be convinced that a human being was being killed. Judge Bork says, I was startled at the anger that statement provoked in several women present. One of them informed me in no uncertain terms that the issue had nothing to do with the humanity of the fetus. Did you get that? The issue had nothing to do with the humanity of the fetus, but was entirely about the woman's freedom. It is here that radical egalitarianism reinforces radical individualism in supporting the abortion right. Justice Harry Blackmun, who wrote Roe and who never offered the slightest constitutional defense of it, simply remarked, that the decision was a landmark on women's march to equality. Equality in this view means that if men do not bear children, women should not have to either. Abortion is seen as a way for women to escape the idea that biology is destiny and from the tyranny of the family role. Listen, if that's the mindset you're working with, you can throw logic, you can throw the Bible out the window. So what do we do? I think Matthew chapter 5 is a clue that they may see your good works and in turn glorify your Father who's in heaven. I recognize that it's a broad road that leads to destruction. The narrow road leads to life. You're not going to get them all. But my challenge here is this. We cannot be an angry church and win over the world. We can be angry at sin. And it can fire you up. And you know me well enough to know that it can fire me up too. But a watching world needs to see a loving community committed to Christ, committed to reaching their neighborhood with the love of Christ. Will you turn in conclusion with me to Luke chapter 7? And let's just remind ourselves of the attitude of our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we live counterculturally? Let me just click off a couple things I was going to talk about in more detail, but I won't. 
First of all, to live counterculturally, Christians must celebrate family. If abortion's an issue, then let's raise our children up and let's have the church be a place that celebrates family. I'm very concerned about the attitude and the cross-eyed looks that, that families who have start having four, five, six, seven, eight children get. People look at them like, something wrong with those people, they haven't figured something out yet. We should celebrate family. What a beautiful thing to have children. I was number four of five. I'm glad my mom and dad didn't quit. Now, the Bible does not tell us how many children to have. But if there is a place that is safe for families and a place where young people who want to have a lot of children should be supported, it ought to be the church. And if you raise children up in a big family and when mommy's going to have another baby and everybody's happy and you love babies and you love children, what does that do to the mindset of our children? That's something that I think we need to think about. To live counterculturally, we have to celebrate family in a way that the world doesn't. We need to, secondly, we need to educate biblically. And that has to do back with our Genesis series on the whole deal of how evolution has taught our children that there is no God, that we're humanists and we're accountable only to ourselves, and that the universe is all about me and my happiness. And as we educate biblically, we've got to somehow figure out a way to instill in our children the fear of God that he is our creator and we're accountable to him. E.O. Wilson was, was a chief spokesperson for evolutionary social biology at Harvard. He's a bitter critic of biblical Christianity. He wrote this about himself. Professor Wilson said, As were many persons from Alabama, I was a born-again Christian. When I was 15, I entered the Southern Baptist Church with great fervor and interest in the fundamentalist religion. I left at 17 when I got to the University of Alabama and heard about evolutionary theory. It matters. We need to celebrate family, we need to educate biblically, and we need to communicate, number three, compassionately. We need to communicate compassionately. And that's Luke chapter 7. Look at this story in brief. Verse 36, and with this we close. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Luke 7, 36. They invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume, and as she stood behind him at his, at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and that what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. She's a sinner. Jesus said, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher. He said, two men owed, owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the women, the woman, and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little loves little. 
And then Jesus said to her, sweetest word she ever heard, your sins are forgiven. Is that a phenomenal story? Listen, our Lord Jesus, when it came to women who made bad choices, our Lord Jesus modeled for us a compassionate gentleman. He did not stand on the street corner and scream. And I'm not against rallying for life. But somehow we've got to be characterized as a safe community where sinners can come in and be restored and lives healed. Can you imagine, and some of you know full well, the emotional baggage of such choices that people have made. Listen, the Lord Jesus is there. He'll look at you and say, your sin is forgiven. That's a beautiful statement, isn't it? Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That those who come and confess and forsake are forgiven. Thank you for the beauty of this concluding story today, reminding us of the restorative nature of the gospel. Father, please help us to think biblically. Help us to live counterculturally, to celebrate family, to educate our children biblically and with passion, passing truth to the next generation, and then to live compassionately, Lord, in the world around us, that they would see our good works and know that we love them, and know that there's hope in Jesus Christ. Father, these are complicated days in which we live. Truth is not held to, and there is no absolute anymore. So help us to stand courageously with conviction to prayerfully consider how to live in this generation. We commit ourselves to this end in Jesus' name.